Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. We journey with our king from the region of where he just came from, Tyre and Sidon, to the north. He returns from Tyre and Sidon, makes his way back to the Galilee, skirts from the north side of the Galilee to the east side of the Galilee, and then the east side of the Jordan River in an area known as the Decapolis. Deca means ten and polis means cities. And so this was a Roman region, a Gentile region that was called the city of the, of the, or, or the region of the ten cities. By the way, Jesus has reached his halfway mark in his own ministry. From this particular time forward, half of his ministry is over with. Uh, there's still half left. He is at this moment in his ministry at the height both of his popularity and his influence. So in this brief but powerful section, Matthew's gospel, we're going to find the king's model for ministry. And in that model for ministry, we're also going to take a peek at Mark's gospel because he gives us much needed details in chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. But the king's model for ministry is going to include reliance upon God, persistent prayer, compassion, involvement, and hope. When I was preparing this message, I looked back. When we first came here over 25 years ago, I uh, didn't have a job. And I went looking for employment. And I applied for a job with a group who suffer from profound disabilities. And some were mildly to severely retarded. Others had a condition known as alcohol fetal syndrome, a, a condition uh, which occurs during pregnancy. Some suffered from different types of mental and emotional disorders that made their ability to work and function independently impossible. And I applied for this job, and if I accepted the position, I would have worked in a group home. That's a, a home where handicapped individuals live together under the supervision of one or more group home counselors. The position required a college undergraduate degree and a working knowledge of counseling and human relations and a, and a comprehensive understanding of working with people with developmental disabilities. The starting pay, $1,200 a month. And I couldn't take the job. I figured that after I paid rent, and by the way, 25 years ago, rent was a lot less. After I paid the rent, after I bought groceries, that would leave me $100 for utilities, 
for gas, for health insurance, for the car payment, for the lunches, for the children, for clothes for my children, for Cub Scout dues for my children. And the people who did the work were caring, dedicated professionals who literally sacrificed much to be there. And I admired them greatly. People rarely get paid big bucks for working with helpless people. Don't confuse helpless, by the way, with hopeless or loveless. There's much discomfort in our society with handicapped people. Sometimes we treat their handicap like it's a communicable disease. Some people fear that if they get close to the handicapped individual, their limitations will become our limitations. Their dependence will become our dependence. Their wheelchair will become our wheelchair. And when Jesus was alive, when Jesus lived, handicapped people didn't have shelters. They didn't have group homes. They didn't have government institutions to assist them. There was no such thing as social service agencies. There was no such thing as welfare departments. There was no such thing as health insurance. The handicapped were dependent on the generosity of others. Family took care of family. Begging was commonplace in that culture. For those who lost support of their immediate family, it was almost not just tragic, but unbelievably tragic. For those of us who have had the experience of having a child with special needs, or a relative with special needs, or a family member or a close friend with profound disabilities, we know about the pain, and we know about the ridicule, and we know about the difficulties that these precious people suffer. We know about the teasing. We know about the taunting. We know about the stares, and at worst, we know about the invisibility, the pretense of people who simply pretend that they're not there. In our world, handicapped people are often invisible people. And it's amazing how easy it is to see what we want to see and not see what we don't want to see. I was reminded of a story. A friend sent me a note. He said that a wife was curious when she found an old negative in a drawer and she made it into a print and she was pleasantly surprised to see that they were of her, a much younger version of her, a much slimmer version of her, taken many, many years before when she was on her first dates with her husband. And when she showed him the photo, his face lit up. Wow, look at that, he said with appreciation. That's my 49 Ford. She was standing next to his old car. We see what we want to see. And in Jesus' day, it was no different. Handicapped people were often looked upon as suffering from the just punishments of sins committed by that person or their family. People suffered tragedy through accident or disease. The deaf and speech impaired were often looked at as being stupid or demonized. 
In this section of Matthew's gospel, it's like wading into a pool, an ocean of pain. There are floods of hurting, handicapped people washing up on the doorsteps of Jesus. And there really is only one place big enough to hold that much pain and that much suffering. It's in the infinite heart of God. And so we begin at the high king's court. Look at what it says in verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Whenever you see in the New Testament Jesus sitting down, it's his way of saying, I'm going to be here for a while. He sits down. And because he sits down, people are going to take advantage of his presence but also his power. Jesus leaves the area of Tyre and Sidon along the coast, goes to that ancient area called Decapolis. In Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verse 31, we read, again, departing the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. By the way, like I said, this is the region called the Ten Cities. And I've visited this region many, many times. It's the area where we find a, a city called Bet-Shean. In the ancient Roman world, it was called Scythopolis. There was another city near there called Pella, where of all things during the time of the Roman invasion and war, if you will, that was going to take place between 66 and 70 AD, the Christians of Jerusalem would flee for their lives and they would go to this area called Pella in the Decapolis. It's going to be important in just a moment. It's Gentile country. And some scholars suggest that Jesus may have spent as much as eight months of his ministry in this region, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, ministering to the afflicted. Again, this is the modern area that reaches from the Golan Heights in parts of Syria and the modern state of Jordan. Jesus was reaching out and I think preparing the region for the future. Because it would be here that the persecuted church would scatter along with Samaria. It would become the first outreach to the Gentile world. So he is there on top of a mountain. All of these little facts are going to be important again in a moment. Look what it says in verse 30. Then great multitudes came to him having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now you can imagine, again, for those of you who have friends, family members, or you yourself have some sort of disability, I can't even begin to tell you how tough it is to travel if you're in a wheelchair or if you're in a litter. Can you imagine as hard as it is right now to go where you need to go and do what you need to do. Can you imagine how difficult it is in this world? Because people are going to bring their loved ones to Jesus. They're going to load them up. And then they're going to take them up the side of this mountain. And then they're going to put them at Jesus' feet. The word maimed, by the way, or crippled, translates 
A very interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word koulos. And it can refer to any part of the human body that's been deformed or which is rendered useless through accident or disease or war. It could include the mutilation of a limb or the total loss of some body part. Again, for those of you who have family or friends who are suffering from diabetes, you know that sometimes the, the disease is so severe that you lose hands or, or feet. Jesus uses the term to describe someone with a foot removed or a hand removed in Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. The text reads, They laid them down at Jesus' feet. The word translated laid means to put down quickly, in haste. It's done quickly, but not carelessly. The multitudes wanted to get their loved ones to Jesus as quickly as possible. And Jesus will, again, deal with the handicapped in a most amazing way. In a very real sense, in the ancient world, it, it doesn't tell us in the text that he posts a sign that says, Broken, welcome. Handicapped, welcome. Diseased and deformed, welcome. He doesn't enact legislation demanding fair treatment or introduce the, to the Roman government the Jewish Sanhedrin, a, a Peasants with Disabilities Act. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I just said. I am not even for a moment slamming legislation that protects the rights and the dignities of the handicapped. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus doesn't order handicapped parking stalls for mules or camels. Jesus does something that we can't do, that the government can't do, that socialized medicine can't do. Jesus is going to offer them wholeness and wellness and healing. Mark's gospel adds in chapter 7, verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, unquote. In other words, when they brought the people who were blind, who were sick, who were lame, whatever condition they happened to find themselves in, Jesus heals them, but it becomes a type and a picture once again for us. That we bring our loved ones to Jesus. We bring people broken with sin to Jesus. We bring ourselves when we're disabled, when we're deformed. The Lord transforms the deformed. Jesus loves the broken. And by the way, Mark's gospel highlights in this sea of hurting humanity, imagine this avalanche of people coming in order to get help. And Mark is now going to hone in on one specific person. In Mark chapter 7, verses 32 through 36, he'll pluck one person from this ocean of pain and tell his story. It says in Mark chapter 7, verse 32, then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his spirit. 
speech and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. The text doesn't tell us where he spat. It just, you, you can almost hear it. Where did it go? Did it go into his hand? And now it's going into his mouth? Gross! But look at what Mark's gospel says. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, If fetah, in Aramaic, the language which Jesus spoke, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Keep your hand on this passage just for a moment. There's really only one place where you can bring this much pain. It's to Jesus. We have to make our way into the heart of God. And by the way, when you make your way into the heart of God, you make your way into the heart of Jesus. And then I want to remind you of something. That in that flood of humanity and Mark's representation of what's going on, we are reminded of something that we should never forget. And that is that Jesus deals with people one person at a time. One person at a time. He takes them away from the aside of the multitude. He takes them aside and he says, I'm going to work with you now again. That might seem overwhelming. And again, in our world, in our culture, in our society, as we look around and we look at this great big world and we think, how in the world, how in the world can Jesus deal with seven and a half billion people? But he's the Lord of the universe. He can know everything about everyone, but then he can... Focus on you, your circumstances, your life, your heart. He heals them one person at a time. And again, this brings up an interesting thing to me, and that is that's how we minister to people, don't we? It's one person at a time. There might be situations like now where I am preaching and teaching to a group of people, but in the very real world in which we live, it's usually we're taking a person to the doctor one person at a time. We're t we've got our hands on a wheelchair one person at a time. We're loving, caring, and praying for a person one person at a time. And Jesus sticks his fingers into the poor man's ears and then spits and touches his tongue. And again, we're not told where. We can only imagine. By the way, I've never seen a healing evangelist on TV ever do this. <laughs> ever. I've never seen a single TV evangelist go, hey, it's in the Bible. So I'm going to give you a wet willy and spit in your mouth. It doesn't happen. But what is the example? And why is this done? Frank Ellis writes, quote, every single one of us is handicapped. 
physically, mentally, socially, spiritually to some degree, and we seldom think about it, the person without faith has a far greater handicap than the person without feet, and that's exactly right. He's pointing out that the person who has the greatest disability of all is the person who in their own head and in their own heart says, I don't, I don't believe this. I don't buy this even for a minute. So how does Jesus deal with the man? Again, my prayer for you today is as you listen to this message that you're going to experience a new power and a new vitality as the presence of God and the power of God fills your head and your heart with hope as you begin to deal with people who need you. In Mark 7, 32, it says the man's speech impediment and deafness probably meant that he lost his hearing either through accident or disease early in life. Stop and think about how terrifying that must have been. You can hear no sound. You can ask no questions. You can answer no questions. Loss of vision certainly is a terrible handicap, but the blind can and often do communicate much better than the deaf. Rarely are the blind viewed as stupid. Not so with the deaf. Even the word dumb has come to mean stupid in our everyday language. This man can't hear the word of Jesus. He can't hear what Jesus is saying. He can't ask for help. His friends bring him to Jesus. And some handicapped people are unable to hear the words of Jesus. And so they ask for help. And they don't always know how to ask for help. But if for some reason there's someone who's disabled in your life and they come to you, no, no. Instead of being frustrated or confused or, or shook up, have a strategy right at this very moment. You can say, I can pray for them and I can bring them to Jesus. I can pray for them and I can bring them to Jesus. We see in our world all kinds of people speaking all kinds of different languages. We don't always hear what they're saying. In countries like India and Burma and the Sudan, men and women sacrifice so much so that they can hear the sounds of the gospel in their own language. And many people in the world have never seen a single page of the Bible translated into their native tongue. Remember, the deaf man hears nothing. Again, look at verse 34 in chapter 7. Remember I told you to keep your finger there. In chapter 7 of verse 34 in Mark's gospel, it says, Epi. Fata, be opened. The word, no doubt, was the first word that the deaf man perhaps had ever heard or had heard in a very, very long time. Jesus opens the man's ears with a single word. Little words can often open big locks. The simplest word opens a deaf ear and brings hope. And this becomes so very important because God's word is powerful. But I'm going to suggest to you that what Jesus is doing becomes even a type and a picture for us. Because as Jesus is sticking his fingers into this person's ears, let me just be blunt here. If you, if you can avoid it, don't stick your fingers into deaf people's ears. They resent it. They know they're deaf. They, don't, they know that sticking their fingers into their ears isn't going to make them more deaf or hear clearer. So why is Jesus doing this? And what does it mean? 
I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is doing it because Jesus is, is letting him know. At this moment, he, he could have used supernatural powers and spoken into his heart, but he uses a physical demonstration to remind this person, in a moment, your ears are going to be open. In a, and he looks up at heaven and he says, and the source of the miracle that you're about to receive is going to come from God himself. I think that that's what it's saying. I heard the story of a hardened unbeliever who one day went to hear George Whitfield preach. And George Whitfield was preaching prior to the American Revolution and what was called the, the Great Awakening. He was quite simply one of the most amazing preachers who ever lived. And George Whitfield, when he preached outdoors, sometimes the crowds would gather 10,000, 20,000, and a man wanted to go at least and see him. And in order to get a good vantage point, he climbed up a nearby tree and then putting his fingers in both ears, he began to watch the mighty preacher. And then a persistent fly landed on his nose. And so the fly kept bugging him. And so he unplugged his hand from his ear just for a moment to shush the fly away. And he heard Whitfield say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the guy's eyes got big and his heart got softer. Whitfield spoke of the willful refusal of many to hear the Spirit's voice. And the unbeliever was so impressed by what he heard that he not only opened his ears, but he opened his heart to the gospel. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verse 33, again, when Jesus does this strange thing, I think he does so to get a message to him. To get a message to him. He's looking to the Father to confirm the miracle, but he's also indicating to the deaf man the source of the power and the source of the miracle. And this becomes something important for you. We point people to heaven. Because that's where the power comes from. It isn't just simply bringing them to church. Look, come to church. Hear Gino speak. Trust me. Hearing me speak will do nothing. Unless Jesus shows up. Unless his message is spoken. Unless his power is revealed. Unless someone is convinced in their own heart for just a brief moment that this real Jesus can do something for them. And so prayer is the first thing. If we're going to minister to the hurting and reach out to the lost, prayer is the first thing. If you have a loved one with disabilities or a family member with disabilities and it seems hard to reach them and it's even more difficult to transfer them, transport them. The great sin of the church isn't selfishness or materialism, although these are great sins. Our great sin is prayerlessness. We won't rely on the Lord for his power and his presence. And I can't go into great detail, but let me remind you of just a, a couple of things. Every major event in the ministry of Jesus was preceded by prayer. Jesus prayed, and that alone should provide sufficient motivation 
foundation for us to get down on our knees. Prayer is the first resource, not the last resort. We're repeatedly commanded to pray, and prayer provides power and poise and peace and purpose, and prayer can open doors faster than any scheme of of human beings and manipulations that we might want to try and implement. Prayer is the thing that gets us access to the Lord. And Jesus sighs. He sighs because he loves people. This becomes one of the repeated themes almost of every time we meet, every time we meet, and every time we look in the passage, and every time we open up our Bible, where there's this constant reminder, he cares for you, he loves you, he has compassion for the hurting and the needy. And we should pray that God would be our constant source of compassion for those in need. Compassion is understanding the troubles of others with an urgent desire to help. That's the definition of compassion. I understand what other people need and I want to help them. True compassion is a sign of a great and a generous heart. And Jesus understood that man's condition in the world was due to sin. The maimed, the blind, the lame, they're broken because of sin. And even this healing is only going to provide temporary relief. Jesus is going to heal them. He's going to restore them. But it's only going to be a temporary restoration. But mankind's need would be forever satisfied at Calvary's cross. Our ultimate need is for a savior And I believe all of the miracles in the Bible point to the ultimate miracle that every single person can experience if they'll place their trust in Jesus, if they'll believe that he is the solution to the problem of sin. So what's the king's model for ministry? He's handicapped accessible. He's wheelchair friendly. People can have access to Jesus no matter what their difficulty is. What's his model for ministry? He looks to heaven as the source of power. It must include compassion. And remember that compassion is more than pity. Jess Moody says, quote, Compassion is not a snob gone slumming. Anybody can salve his conscience by an occasion foray into the knitting for the spastic home. Did you ever take a trip... Down inside the broken heart of a friend to feel the sob of the soul, the raw crucible of emotional energy, to have this become almost as much yours as that of your soul-crushed neighbor, then to sit down with him and silently weep. This is the beginning of compassion, unquote, and he's exactly right. Sometimes the only thing you can do is show up and say, I'm listening and I care. 
And I can't even begin to tell you what a powerful thing that is. And so look at the, the king's healing command. Look at verse 31. So the multitudes marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is yet another clue, another reminder, another hint that Jesus isn't in Jewish country anymore. He's in Gentile country. The people rejoiced when they saw Jesus touch people and heal people. And Jesus, again, is in the habit of touching the untouchable. The crowds are in awe, it says. They marvel. And the crowds will, by the way, swell to several thousands. That's what we're going to see later on in the chapter. The crowds are overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of people being healed. And the fact that, again, they glorified the God of Israel further reinforces the fact that this is Gentile country. And for the most part, Jesus will confine his ministry to the Jew Jewish people. But we should know, we should know, we should know. When strangers or Gentiles come to Jesus in faith, he finds a place for them. Hey, I'm not a part of the in crowd. We'll find a place for you. I'm normally drawn outside the circle. We'll find a place for you. In Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verse 35. It says, immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. When Jesus touches a person and makes them whole, he really makes them whole. And by the way, both in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, the word touch is way more than superficial contact. Remember, I've used the term. It isn't like when you're traveling with your children across country and, and the kids in the backseat say, he touched me. It isn't that kind of little poke. It means to grab. It means to lay hold of. It means, I, I guess the word that I think better suits the meaning is he gripped them. He grabbed them and squeezed them. And it's interesting. In Mark's gospel, it says he spoke. But what's interesting in the original text, it says way more. The, 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 the construction of the verb is, he spoke, and he kept on talking, and he kept on talking, and he kept on talking, and he kept on talking. In other words, he spoke, and he wouldn't shut up. And that's this powerful picture we receive when Jesus comes into a person's heart and life and changes us and transforms us. It's hard to keep our mouth shut. And again, I think God created human beings with this overwhelming desire to communicate. And so God speaks to us, but he often clearly wants to hear from us. And so he's put inside of us this overwhelming need to communicate. Max Lucado writes, quote, God, motivated by love and directed by divinity, surprises everyone. 
he becomes a man. In an untouchable mystery, he disguises himself as a carpenter and he lives in a dusty Judean village determined to prove his love for his creation. He walks incognito through his own world, his calloused hands touched wounds and his compassionate tongue touched hearts. He becomes one of us. Have you ever seen such determination? Have you ever witnessed such a desire to communicate, unquote? When I read Max Lucado's quote, I couldn't help but think of Helen Keller, who was overcome with an amazing fever, and she lost the ability both to see and speak. But there was something so powerful inside of her that knew that there was an outside world and she wanted so desperately to communicate with it. And so it is for people who are broken by sin or disabled. They just want to be seen and they just want to be touched. When we fail to listen and act and speak, when we fail to touch, there's a price that the compassionate heart has to pay. The heart becomes calloused, sometimes cold, sometimes hardened, sometimes even hypocritical. True compassion is not simply content to feel sorry. It has to reach out. And then take a hold of and grip the object of its care. And that's exactly what God did in Christ when he saw you. And so, Jesus provides hope. Jesus is our model. Jesus and the true disciple of Jesus, the true servant of God, has to be willing to pray. The servant of God has to be willing to acknowledge that God is the source of healing. The servant has to be able to say, hey, look, I don't have any ability to help this person whatsoever in the area where it matters most, invisibly and eternally, in relationship to sin. I can bring them food. I can wheel them to church. Anybody can do that. Jesus provides hope. Hey, I don't have supernatural powers. It doesn't say you have to have supernatural powers. I don't have amazing gifts. But it's not supernatural powers and amazing gifts or a charismatic personality or that you have the model appearance of a model or that you drive a Volkswagen. I threw that in just because I miss my Volkswagen. <laughs> we pray. We care. We touch. We get involved. And guess what? That gives people hope. So what's the king's model for ministry? He points people to heaven. A miracle takes place. The deformed are transformed. So what's the king's model? Prayer. Compassion. Involvement, hope. By the way, are we ready for a ministry to those with special needs? Where are the people willing to sign for the deaf? Where are they? 
Because guess what? If you can sign, there are deaf people who want to hear from you. Where are the people willing to help? Where are the people willing to pick up the handicapped or the elderly or the shut-in? Where are the people who are willing to bring people to Jesus even when it's hard to get them to Jesus? Dr. Joe Brown of Rochester, Minnesota tells of trying to get a physical history from a patient. The man's wife answered every question that the doctor answered. Finally, Dr. Brown requested that she leave the room. And after she left, the doctor found that her husband quite literally couldn't speak. And calling the wife back, Dr. Brown apologized for not realizing that the man had aphasia, which is a loss of speech. He couldn't speak a word. And the wife was astonished because she didn't know it either. Isn't it funny what we miss that's right in front of us? Do you know someone who desperately wants to speak to God or desperately wants to hear from God and they have absolutely no way of doing that? They don't even know how to do that. There are those who are spiritually incapacitated. And it's quite possible that the people closest to you have become invisible to you. But prayer will help you see them. Compassion will help you care about them. Involvement with them will bring hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are a good God. Lord, we know that Jesus comes to provide hope. Lord, we know that Jesus is the source of hope, the source of healing, the source of grace, the source of mercy, the source of forgiveness. Lord, we know in moments of honesty that we can't give people what they really need. Life, forgiveness, hope, all of these things come from Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that as we talk about Jesus, as we present Jesus, as we point people to Jesus, that people would come to the realization that that empty heart, that dark heart, that guilty heart, that broken person, handicapped and incapacitated by sin, could get help and that the blind would see, that the deaf would hear. And for those who have lost the use of the most important parts of their life, could get them back again so that they could be used by God. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman who's willing to look inside of their own heart and ask the most important questions. Is there a God? And the answer is yes. 
Is there a Savior? Jesus Christ is the Savior. Did he die on the cross for my sins? The answer is yes. Is he willing to forgive me? The answer is yes. Lord, we know that the biggest question they need to ask is, do you know that you're a sinner? And if the answer is yes, do you want forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, then why wouldn't you accept Christ? Why wouldn't you allow him to come into your heart? Why wouldn't you invite him to be a part of your life? And so Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person. I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, you know my heart. Lord, you know my need to turn from my sin and to turn to you and experience the grace and the mercy that's found only in Jesus. I want to be changed. I want to be different. I want my life to be different and I want my future to be different. I want Jesus to be a part of my life. And Lord, for the person who's prayed that prayer, Lord, I pray that they would sense your love and compassion and your willingness to do that. And if that's you, and you know you need to have a right relationship with God, you know you need to get right with Jesus, there are going to be men and women who are going to be available to pray with you right after the service. You just come up, tell them, I prayed that prayer. I want Christ in my heart. Guess what? He'll show up. Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.